Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, and welcome to the second release from our audio archive series, which features Robin O'Dell speaking at the Cloak and Dagger Club and giving a talk entitled Jack the Ripper's Entree from February 2001. Mr. O'Dell is the author of many crime books and his books on the Jack the Ripper case, Jack the Ripper in Fact and Fiction, Summing Up in Verdict, which was co-written with Colin Wilson, and Ripperology, a study of the world's first serial killer in a literary phenomenon, must be considered three of the best books on the subject. So let's venture into the Cloak and Dagger Club in 2001 and listen to Robin O'Dell. that's the way I operate, but I hope it won't sound too flat as I read it. I will try to make it as animated as possible. Now, when I was asked if I would speak to the club uh, last year at the um, meeting at the London Dungeon where Stuart Evans' book was launched, my first reaction was to decline. Uh, not out of undue modesty, you understand, but simply because I didn't really think I had anything new to add, and possibly not much to add at all. Uh, to such a discerning group of Ripper specialists as this. Apart from my two books on the subject, the second written jointly with Colin Wilson, which Andy referred to, I've dabbled in a number of crime projects. Um, one of them's already been mentioned, Exhumation of a Murder, um, and other crime subjects. So while I'm happy to be referred to as a Ripperologist, I lack the continuous dedication to the subject that I know some of you uh, have indulged in and which has led to some of the great uh, research advances in recent years. So you see, I'm not putting myself in your category, I'm a little bit remote these days from the detail. So that's why I hesitated. Nevertheless, I was persuaded uh, that I might make a talk which was really sort of based on reminiscences as much as anything else. So I elected to talk around what I called Jack the Ripper's Intray. Well, at one time, we talked about the Whitechapel murders as having been committed in the last century. Well, now we talk about the books written about the murders as having been published in the last century. And mine is certainly one of those. Jack the Ripper, in fact, in fiction, was published in 1965. And the research for it, of course, was carried out in the three or so years preceding that. In the early 1960s, much of Whitechapel and Spitalfield was still intact terms of its physical links to uh, the murders. I recollect visiting 29 Hanbury Street a few months before it was pulled down. The original front door was intact, giving access to the dark, grimy passage along which our murderer had walked with his victim and down the few steps into the tiny backyard. Miller's Court had disappeared by then, so for me it was Hanbury Street which provided a kind of bridge with the reality of the murders and certainly afforded plenty of atmosphere. My reasons for writing uh, about Jack the Ripper 
was simply that I wanted to write. Um, in fact, it was a friend who suggested the subject to me um, by giving me a copy of Leonard Pettis' book, The Mystery of Jack the Ripper, I'm sure you're familiar with that, which strayed between fantasy and reality. I thought these murders really happened. Uh, they're part of history. And surely it must be possible to set down a proper objective account and make a sensible analysis of the facts. So that was my raison d'etre. And although I didn't know it at the time, Tom Cullen had much the same idea. Because as you've heard, our two books came out almost together. Of course, carrying out research in the 1960s was a very different proposition to the present day. Making contact with people and organisations was achieved mostly by exchanging letters and actually only rarely by telephone. I mean, we're talking about a good um, 40 years ago. My visits to London and the East End came via cheap day rail excursions from Southampton, where I lived at the time. And a major difficulty was not so much accessing uh, documentation, but of recording its contents. With photocopying in its infancy, it really was a matter of writing everything down. Well, this was pretty tedious and time-consuming, but it had one great benefit, which was that it actually got the important facts sort of securely lodged into your head. One of the time-honoured methods of seeking information was to advertise in the personal columns uh, of newspapers. This brought forward some interesting responses, uh, which were among the first in my Ripper in-trade. It is interesting to reflect that many people in the year 1960, uh, perhaps age 77, or thereabouts, and certainly older than that, had childhood memories of what the East End was like at the time of the Rays. Also, it was not inconceivable that the Ripper himself, although admittedly somewhat geriatric, was nevertheless still alive. So that was also part of the perspective of the time. One of my correspondents was Jack Rogers, a sprightly old man in his 80s, uh, who was interviewed on BBC Radio in 1962. Uh, about his colourful life as a costermonger here in the East End of London. I tracked him down to his retirement home in Brighton, and the first thing I had to do was defend off his immediate demands for payment in order to tell me anything. Um, but I used a certain amount of charm uh, to get out of that one. Um, and like most of these people, once they get talking, they can't stop, so it all come, came flowing out. Um, he claimed to have been with his father setting up their stall in the minories when Catherine Eddowes was found murdered in Mitre Square. He heard the police whistle and went to scene. He told me the words Jack the Ripper were written in blood on a nearby wall. He added, especially for the benefit of his visitor, he always did this. Of course, the difficulty with these sort of anecdotes is to decide how much you can believe when there is clear evidence of fantasy creeping in. Nevertheless, Jack Rogers was good on the social conditions of the time. He mentioned the proliferation of slaughterhouses in Spitalfields, and particularly in the Boardgate, where some three dozen men usually worked all night. That many men, uh, wearing blood-stained aprons and carrying sharp knives, conjures up an almost Pythonesque setting, doesn't it, for the night of the double event. Now, publishing in the 1960s was a somewhat genteel affair, not the cutthroat business, sorry about that, uh, business it has since become. Television was still being developed, and it too had a genteel quality, not the sort of rushing about kind of era that we're familiar with today. I remember being asked to take part in an interview for TWW in Bristol, 
I believe DWW was known locally as Telly Welly Wales, but our friends Bob Hinges could probably. The interview was confirmed by uh, letter, telling me that I would travel by first-class rail uh, to Bristol, and that a taxi, probably a Ford Zodiac white wedding car, would convey me to the studio. The appearance fee was ten guineas. Well, there you go. That's the big time, isn't it? I did another interview for Southern Television when I rather ill-advisedly agreed to the producer's request to conjure up a kind of identity picture of Jack the Ripper. They set an artist to work, um, and the picture was duly transmitted as part of the uh, interview. It provoked numerous responses, including a telephone call to the studio before I had left, reporting that a man answering that description had been seen in the city centre. <laughs> the local paper next day carried a report claiming, and I quote, a face which the police forces of Britain have been hunting since the reign of Queen Victoria was seen on local television last night. So, immediate, tricky as ever, eh? This is a bit of an afterthought, which I came up with yesterday, actually. Um, and interestingly enough, it also came up in a conversation I had with one of our friends here um, at um, the meal that we had earlier. One of the barriers uh, to serious consideration of the Whitechapel murders in the 1960s was that the public tended to think of Jack the Ripper in terms of a fictional Victorian melodrama. He was a kind of bogeyman who lived really only in the imagination. And one of the ways I counted this was to cast the murders in their social context and refer to the social improvements which followed in their wake. This helped to make the subject respectable and people began to understand that, despite the sensational label, Jack the Ripper was only too real. I gave a number of lectures developing this social theme, not least at the sociology department at Southampton University, much to my surprise. I used to begin with a quotation from William Booth, the Salvationist, and his reference to, and I expect you're familiar with this, the bastard of a harlot born in a brothel and suckled on gin, his description of the East End prostitutes, which I thought set the scene rather well. It certainly got the students on the edges of their seats, I can tell you. Well, I'll not bore you with an account of the social conditions of the time. I'm sure you're all only too familiar uh, with, with that. But it is interesting that the Daily Telegraph reported Annie Chapman will affect in one way what 50 secretaries of state could never accomplish, focusing attention on the East End conditions. There were some outstanding reformers at the time, including Dr Thomas Bernardo and the Reverend Samuel Barnett. They led the way. And in the immediate aftermath of the murders, they, the public contributed three million pounds to the Barnardo organisation. That's a tremendous amount of money uh, at that time. Of course, the business climate then was really not much different to what it is today, and complaints soon arose about racketeering over housing developments. This provoked the Socialist League to refer to the operating for profit made literally with the murderer's knife. So there seemed to be a clear view uh, that the advent of the murders had changed things. But, back to my correspondent, to my intro, some of whom quite properly belonged to the loony fringe with their offers of Nazi memorabilia and photographs of Belson. But they were a tiny minority and hardly worth mentioning. Um, Mr George Keeler, though, who wrote to me from Blackpool, claiming to be Jack the Ripper's son, possibly deserves a footnote. His claim, apart from being pursued by the Department of Social Security, 
um, was that his father was a wood pattern maker employed by Sir Hiram Maxim, inventor of the machine gun. So I suggest there's a novel line of inquiry there for anyone who wants to take up a, a piece of research. Well, with each new correspondent comes the hope that some hitherto undiscovered nugget of information will emerge. It rarely happens, of course, but occasionally some useful insight is provided, or maybe a conjugation um, of previously unrelated incidents. In 1993, um, I received a letter from a gentleman called Dr. Hal Yarrow, who's a medical practitioner and dermatologist with consulting rooms in Marylebone. He had read the book, which I co-wrote with Colin Wilson, and thought that we had missed an obvious suspect by not naming John McCarthy, the Dorset Street lodging housekeeper, as the Ripper. His reasoning was that McCarthy knew the local prostitutes and was trusted by them. He also lived locally and knew the area intimately. Moreover, he was known to have been outside Kelly's room in the early hours of the morning that she was found murdered. He was, said Dr. Yarrow, the last man anyone would suspect of being the Ripper. Now, this idea had resonance with information about McCarthy turned up by another correspondent, a chap called Gary Rowe. He may be noticed on the okay. um, Anyway, Gary shared his ideas with me over a five-year period and developed his own thesis about the Ripper's uh, identity. Gary discovered that there were two John McCarthy's living at 27 Dorset Street, and listed in the, 90, in the 1891 census. Among the 16 people living at that address were John McCarthy, aged 42, who lived with his wife Mary, aged 38, and their son. This John was born in Spitalfield and was classed as a general shopkeeper. The other John McCarthy, also aged 42, lived with his wife Elizabeth, also aged 38, and their four daughters. This John was born at Dieppe in France, and his birthplace at least suggests an interesting link with Mary Kelly's French connections. <clears throat> Talking of Mary Kelly brings me to Mark King. Again, I ask if he's known to members. Yes, yes I thought he might. Um, <coughs> Mark and I corresponded between 1994 and 1995, and I think he went public in the uh, local newspaper, the East London Advertiser, with his belief that the real Mary Kelly was not murdered and that the body found at Miller's Court was not hers. He referred to the sightings of Mary Kelly after she was supposed to be dead and believes that she was still alive in the early 1900s. Mark made the point that the murderer's mutilation of the body at Miller's Court and obliteration of her features made it unlikely that Joseph Barnett's identification was reliable. Kelly was known to let other women use her room, and it was one of these who became the murder victim, so he suggested. Now Mark unearthed the fact that one of Kelly's friends was Joseph Fleming, also known as James Evans, who was rounded up by the police in 1892 and registered as insane. He thought this was curious, to say the least. Now, this story links with another of my correspondents, a male psychiatric nurse from Kent, uh, who wrote to me because he believed it was a secret. He referred to an elderly patient under his care in the 1970s who was nicknamed Queenie on account of her resemblance to Queen Alexandra. Her real name, and you've heard this before, was Annie Crooks, and she was the brain-damaged daughter of Annie Chapman. 
Queenie had been admitted to the Reigate Institution for the Mentally Subnormal uh, in 1888 with the secret history that she was the child of the Duke of Clarence. Mary Kelly, who had acted as midwife when Annie Chapman gave birth, was also the child's godmother. Chapman, according to this account, tried to kill the infant but succeeded only in permanently brain damaging the child. And following instructions from people in high places, took the child to Reigate. Kelly was regarded as a useful go-between, and she contrived to have another woman murdered in her place at Miller's Court. Mary Kelly, again according to this correspondent, went to live in Leytonstone, where she died in 1938, and Queenie died in 1980, a harmlessly demented geriatric. My correspondent alleged that Queenie's case notes were spirited away to the archivist at Windsor Castle. He said that a search for patients' files at the Reigate Institution proved disappointing, as a fire in 1912 had destroyed many of the records held there. So, nothing new there then. Another conjugation of uh, correspondence was that of Monroe and Boddington. Christopher Monroe, grandson of James Monroe, former commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, wrote to me in 1988. This followed publication of the book I did with uh, Colin, in which we referred to James Monroe and specifically to a suggestion made by an Australian correspondent called Red Boddington that Monroe himself was a possible Ripper candidate. Boddington wrote to me over a 12-month period, uh, around about 1967-68, concerning a range of Ripper-related matters. Um, there were closely argued mini-essays on the Ripper's skill with the knife, uh, on Professor Camps and his ideas, on sex-crazed killers in general, Dr. Phillips's post-mortem, and James Monroe. Now, Monroe was described as a vain, secretive man working at the CRD. It is a matter of record that he, <laughs> that he resigned his position in August 1888 because he found it impossible to work with the commissioner, Sir Charles Warren. Munro was a policeman through and through, having served in India for 20 years, six of them as Inspector General of the Bengal Police. Ironically, after Warren resigned, uh, Munro was appointed commissioner in his place and served in that capacity until uh, June 1890, when he resigned a second time. Shades of Peter Mandelson there, I think. On this occasion, his resignation was intended as a protest against the pensions bill, which he believed failed to meet the legitimate uh, expectations of the police. So Munro returned to India, where he took up missionary work. Now, Boddington's, that's the Australian gentleman, his thesis was that Munro, a highly religious man, had a psychopathic personality and was obsessed with grand ideas about reforming the police service. His ambitions were continually thwarted by... Sir Charles Warren, whose thinking always ran down exclusively military lines. The murders were conceived by Munro then as a means of drawing attention to the inadequacies of Scotland Yard, its worthless leadership, and the shocking social conditions of the East End. The idea was to force Warren out and to discredit Sir Robert Anderson so that Munro would become commissioner and be free to implement his reforms. All this, of course, not surprisingly, was dismissed by Christopher Munro in the erudite and wide-ranging letter he sent to me in 1988. Not having my address, he sent his letter care of Sonning Common Post Office and endorsed the envelope 
the addressee is a man of letters and may be well known locally, which I can tell you created great amusement in my household. <laughs> they didn't know anyone like that. Christopher Munro have been in contact with Keith, Keith Skinner over the back there, uh, and Martin Howells, and broadly favoured MJ Druitt as a ripper suspect. He also mentioned a possible memoir left by his grandfather, which, though it mentioned much of importance, omitted any reference to the Ripper murders. He speculated that only a sanitized memoir be left for the former commissioner's children, while a revised version incorporating details of the murders was written for the eyes only of his eldest son. All this speculation was vouchsafed to Messrs. Skinner and Howells by a well-meaning by a well-meaning and well-mannered man who was disturbed about possible stains on his grandfather's reputation. Interestingly, Reg Boddington's thesis on the Ripper as a social reformer had some resonance with Tom Cullen's ideas. Tom noted what he called the dramatic unities of the murders, which came together if it was a murderer's intention to throw light on the social injustice prevailing in the East End. First, where better to start than Whitechapel and Spitalfields? Second, who better to sacrifice his victims than some of the area's prostitutes? Third, what better time than at weekends when the markets and pubs were thronged with people ready to listen to sensational news? And fourth, what better way of heightening the sensation than by leaving the bodies in the street and making no attempts at concealment? So, where does all this leave us? I think to be truthful, no further forward in terms of establishing the truth of what happened. But it is perhaps another thread in the rich tapestry which has been woven around the river murders. A man in Australia I did not know and have never met or spoken to spent many hours writing letters to a complete stranger on the subject of mutual interest, testing out ideas and uh, theories. I estimate that over the 12 months of our correspondence, Reg Boddington and I probably exchanged over 50,000 words. So there's almost a book's worth <laughs> in, in that member of my, uh, that correspondent in my intro. Well, correspondence with established authors, river authors and, and authorities, produced a mixed response. One of my earliest contacts was Don Rumbelow. I don't think Don's here this evening. No. Not yet. Ah, okay. Uh, and we maintained uh, a steady exchange of information without the sort of coy uh, protectionism that was practiced by some. The same is true for Tommy Tuffield, another name you may be familiar with, who put forward a very well-reasoned thesis identifying Frank Miles, the homosexual artist who once lived with Oscar Wilde as the Ripper. Tommy continues to keep a watching brief on Ripper affairs from Gibraltar, which is where he now lives. I was also fortunate enough to talk to Dr. Lindsay Neustadter, a distinguished forensic psychiatrist, who eventually contributed a foreword to my book in 1965. His willingness to help was important as he lent gravitas to the more analytical approach um, which I and others were trying to take to the subject. He himself said it was important to get away from the... Oh, Bill. To get away from the terror by gaslight uh, views of, uh, of the murders. <coughs> Dr. Francis Kemps was another heavyweight commentator on the subject who made his own distinctive uh, contribution to Ripper research with his discovery of drawings relating to Catherine Eddowes' death, which he found at London Hospital. I met him on one occasion when he visited Southampton University to speak to the Students' Union. 
His illustrated lecture consisted of talking about a series of slides interspersed with long sessions filling and lighting his pipe. Anybody who ever met him knew that he was inseparable from this pipe. For the most part, his slides, which I suspect had been rather hurriedly assembled, were pictures of cadavers on the post-mortem table. And his preamble went something along the lines of, I believe this is the body of a man who was found dead in the public laboratory at Lambeth, and then went on to tell some story about it. I recollect that several students passed by and had to have medical attention. One interesting point uh, that uh, Camps made, though, was about the power, uh, powers of observation of eyewitnesses. While Camps was talking, a man came into the lecture room, completely unannounced, armed with a long pole to close the windows. At the end of his talk, uh, Camps asked members of the audience to describe the man. The results were unbelievably wide of the mark. So there's, there's a lesson there. Others, though, have been less forthcoming. For example, Dan Farston and Donald McCormick were polite in their disinclination to say anything useful. I also had fairly regular contact with Stephen Knight, uh, until he died so tragically before his time. And in 1976, I was asked to give a paper to our society, a group of crime buffs who used to operate under the more recognisable name of the, the Crimes Club. At that time, our society dinners were all male, black tie affairs, with the exception of one dinner a year, which was ladies' night. The club secretary, Judge Henry Elam, thought it would be a fun idea to air the subject of Jack the Ripper, and I was the chosen victim. I did my best to entertain a full house at the Piccadilly Hotel with a review of Ripper theories, including the most recent one at that time, put forward by Stephen Knight in his book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. Stephen had been invited to the dinner as a guest, and when I had finished my presentation, uh, I invited him to add a postscript, which he did. His remarks were heavily laced with allegations of Freemasonry conspiracy, which, in a gathering of judges, senior lawyers, police officers and doctors, ill judged. In 1963, I made vain attempts to grapple with the elusive Dr. Thomas Dutton. You remember his fabled Chronicles of Crime, uh, which provided the basis of much of McCormick's research. Donald told me that Dutton gave him permission to take notes from the diaries, and these were the only records that he had. Uh, as Dutton had left no family, he apparently gave the diaries to one of his patients. And I'm sure many of you have uh, encountered the frustration of trying to chase this up. Uh, in my case, the Royal College of Physicians told me that the Chronicles had not found a home in their library, nor it seemed in the West Sussex County Library, the area in which Dutton lived, and there's no record of his will in Somerset House. He died in 1935. So, like much of the documentation which has fueled Ripper investigation, Dr. Dutton's diary seemed to exist more in the mind than on paper. The same, though, cannot be said uh, of Sir Melville McNaughton's famous notes. Some of you will have known Joe Gault, or at least know of his name. He was a publisher with a passion for crime and a man of some influence. One weekend in 1966, I think it was, he invited me over to his Surrey home because he had something which he thought might interest me. His little surprise turned out to be several box files containing original Ripper documents uh, which had been spirited out of the Yard's archives. Such an opportunity to delve into the official files was unheard of at the time, and we spent uh, some pretty concentrated time looking through the material which had been sneaked out under the signature of Sir Ranulph Bacon, known to Rashid, Rashid, I think, 
his friend, um, who was Deputy Assistant Commissioner. The papers were in a hopeless muddle, and I guess the files had been mauled over uh, by many curious but undisciplined hands. Of course, the thrill in seeing the papers lay as much in handling the tangible evidence of history as in finding any solution to a mystery. Among the papers were Dr. Thomas Bond's notes about the Whitechapel murders, uh, George Hutchinson's statement, um, Inspector Swanson's report on an interview with the indefatigable Dr. Forbes Winslow, uh, and there were notes by Dr. Rosalind Dalston uh, and, and the suspicions which he had, and much else besides. All good stuff. While every scrap of paper was interesting, the jewel was Sir Melvin McNaughton's handwritten notes dated 23 February 1894, which has formed the basis of Tom Collins' Tom Cullins' arguments in favour of M.J. Druitt and the similar line taken by Dan Farson. I soon realised that the notes I had in front of me, clearly original, they're written on sheets of uh, lined blue paper, were different in several important aspects uh, to the uh, versions used by Messrs. Cullen and Farson. When I told Dan about my discovery of the notes and of the differences in them, he said he'd had difficulty in tracing Druitt due to what he now knew were mistakes in the version he had acquired from Lady Emma Conway, that was McNaughton's daughter, in 1959. Fortunately, advances in research made possible by access to documents of assured provenance has enabled writers in recent years to break away from the notes made from the notes from the notes made by persons who burned the originals. I take the credit then, if there is any, for being the first to publish an accurate version of the Norton Notes, which appeared in 1966 in a revised version of my Jack the Ripper in Fact and Fiction. That's the paperback which I've seen in circulation this evening, much to my pleasure, I may say. Well, I doubt very much that I've added anything significant to your sum of knowledge about Jack the Ripper, apart from a few rambling anecdotes. For my part, I've yet to read a theory of identity that I find truly convincing, and I continue to be vexed by some of the well-established facts of the murders, which many have chosen to dismiss. I refer to the question of the Ripper's skills with a knife. Oh no, not that old chestnut again, do I hear someone say. Well, at the risk of taxing your patience, and by way of conclusion, I would like to refer to what some of the doctors at the time said about the murderer's use of the knife. I make, make the point strongly that we're dealing here with first-hand evidence seen and accessed, accessed by practised observers. Doctors Phillips, Llewellyn, Brown and others were not armchair critics, separated by decades of time and sheaths of notes about notes from the events they described. They were there, they saw the blood, they saw the injuries, they saw the victims' bodies, and they gave their professional opinions. Of course, they didn't all agree, doctors really do, but there was a preponderance of opinion favouring the idea that the Ripper showed some skill with the knife. For example, Dr. Ralph Llewellyn, referring to the mutilation of Polly Nichols, said the wounds were deftly and fairly skillfully performed. Dr. George Baxter Phillips said about Annie Chapman's injuries, the mutilation of the body was of such a character as could only have been effected by a practised hand. Of the same victim, he also said, the mode in which the knife had been used seemed to indicate a great anatomical knowledge. Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, commenting on the injuries inflicted on Catherine Eddowes, said, 
I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. It requires a great deal of medical knowledge to have removed the kidney. And Dr. George Sequeira, also commenting on Catherine Edo's injuries, said there was no evidence of any anatomical knowledge other than could be expected of a professional butcher, adding he was no stranger to the knife. The main dissenter from what was otherwise a consensus view was Dr. Thomas Bond, who saw the most heavily mutilated victim, Mary Kelly. He believed there was no evidence of any anatomical knowledge on the part of the murderer. Now, if you imagine the police calling uh, a case conference in 1888 to look at all the evidence with a view to establishing some kind of offender profile, you would have six medical opinions expressed on the subject of skill with the knife. Five of those opinions were in favour of skill having been shown and one was totally against. Of the five, three were strongly in favour and two, you would say, were lukewarm. An objective assessment, I suggest, on that basis would be that the police should be looking for someone accustomed to using knives in a professional or semi-professional capacity involving either humans or animals. The language used by the doctors is moderate and ranges from Dr. Sukera's low skill evaluation, no stranger to the knife, to Dr. Brown's higher level of skill, a great deal of anatomical knowledge. So there must have been something about the injuries they saw which led them to these conclusions. Whatever it was, I suggest it must have been fairly convincing. For surely it would have been a lot easier for these medical men to protect the integrity of their profession, if nothing else, simply to rubbish all suggestions that any skill had been used. So I think there's an interesting viewpoint here which cannot be too easily dismissed. The doctors were the only trained scientific observers to examine the victims. Their reports are a matter of record, and they should be respected. Of course, I'm not saying Jack the Ripper was a doctor or a surgeon, but his ruthless, sure-handed use of the blade suggests to me that he was indeed no stranger to the knife. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you for listening. insight there to uh, a gentleman that was uh, involved in the subject long before uh, the modern wave of books and the uh, new theories that have come along and I'm sure there's going to be some questions so Robin would you mind taking some questions from the audience right any questions uh, can they also refer back to your book yes. and uh, whatever right okay come in over here yeah, very interesting there, Robin. One of the questions I've got to ask that we always ask is, did you take any photographs when you brought them around in the 60s? Yes. Um, the, um, <laughs> the ones that were properly exposed were published in the book. Uh, there are others, but um, they're not really of very high quality. Um, I think the, um, the favourite one for me, as I mentioned, was 29 Andrew Street, because that building was virtually intact. Um, and certainly it was a very... Uh, strange sensation walking down that um, narrow passageway, which had been almost sort of polished smooth with the hands. I suspect a ripperologist actually. <laughs> uh, we've been down there since to visit this uh, this shrine, you might say. 
but that was quite fascinating. And I don't think the front door of that building had a coat of paint <laughs> since 1888. Did you go to Bucks Row at all as well to see that? Um, yes, I went to Bucks Row, Derwood Street, as I think it became, um, and tried to negotiate the uh, geography of Bernard Street. Uh, but that was difficult at that time because it had all been built up. So Andrew Street was the, uh, was the jewel of the old site. And that, as I say, was pulled down very shortly after I visited. Uh, okay, another question? Anything from the back? Can you, um, can we just go back to, I mean, you've given us a great overview and the, and the subject matter you chose to talk to the club about tonight is, is, is great because, as I say, you were one of the first to do it. Um, but, but equally, an awful lot of people, and you've already recognised that people have got the paperback version of your book. Some of us have got the original. Um, can you just take us back through your ritual uh, Jewish slaughterman and, and tell us why that became still is an outstanding theory and no one ever has approached that. Can you just take us through the history of why you, you, yes. you decided on that? It has, I think, actually quite an interesting history because um, when I wrote the book, um, I, my conclusions were drawing me towards this idea of, and I've repeated this several times this evening, of the murderer being no stranger to the knife, so I was looking at butchers and slaughtermen, um, because they're ruthless um, users of the knife. I mean, butchers don't muck about, time is money, they've got to hack and slash and get it right, and, you know, so they know how to do the business. And so my thinking was going down that route. Uh, and that's what I developed uh, in the first draft of the book. Sent it to the publisher, and um, as they did in those days, I don't know whether they do it now, they don't make quick decisions. You know, you don't hear anything for months. And you find what they've done. They sent the script to people who know about the subject. And in this case, it was sent to a chap called Fenton Breslin. Um, okay, and a name known to some. I believe he's a sometime hack who writes in the Daily Express. <laughs> as well. <laughs> I know he was. Yes. I, sat, I sat almost next to him. Yes. Well, Fenton and I are old friends. Um, and you'll, you'll realise why uh, when I tell you the rest of the story. Fenton uh, did a report on this perspective book. Um, and, you know, he was, he was very um, logical uh, about it. Um, he made various suggestions which were quite rational and so on. And he said to me, well, really, you've, you've not taken it as far as you should. And I said, well, I said to Fenton, well, you know, what, what do you mean? He said, well, you're trying to sort of lead up to pinning this on a slaughter. He said, but there's a further stage you can go to, and that is the Jewish, the ritual slaughter. So in that sense, he sort of guided me. Um, and so I did some research uh, into what all this meant, uh, what precisely it was that Shokhet did, um, what his standing was in the community, and this kind of thing. And so um, I then built up a theory, or rather developed it, uh, moving into <coughs> that direction. I just felt that um, it has something going for it because the Choquette was, uh, his skills were of an order higher than the ordinary slaughter. They had to be because the Choquette needed a fairly um, good working knowledge of human anatomy in order to be able to make the necessary dissections uh, that uh, kept the meat, uh, animal meat, um, made in kosher. So we had to know quite a bit about uh, anatomy. We're talking, of course, about animals' anatomy here, uh, but obviously we can translate that into someone used to using knives and familiar with, let's say, the um, 
anatomy of uh, mammals, uh, animals, and by extrapolation of humans. Um, also, of course, Choquettes lived and worked uh, in the East End of London. They were familiar figures on the street. I guess they would have been dressed in fairly orthodox garb. Um, but then so were a lot of people. Um, but they would have been an accepted part of the daily life of this area. And so they would meet the criteria for someone living in the area, uh, knowing its geography, being familiar with people, and probably living somewhere where you would get off the streets fairly quickly. So in a sense, it met a lot of the uh, essential criteria. Um, I've never really sort of said, well, and that's the end of the story. I mean, I just put it forward as an assessment uh, of the facts which were known at the time when I was writing. That, um, you know, a sensible analysis of those facts could lead you in that direction um, and the case on that basis. And I've not had to do so until um, this evening. <laughs> And that was Robin O'Dell at the February 2001 meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any questions or comments about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards, or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for Rippercast. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.